Welcome to episode three of the Conversations on Death podcast. My name is Lorena and I'm your host for the Conversations on Death podcast. Death is the one thing we all have in common, yet it's one of the most taboo subjects in our culture. So I invite you, dear Deathling, to join my guests and I as we dive deep into everything death related and in the process, learn about the many lessons death has to teach us the living. Hey guys, welcome back. Um, I'm super excited to have this guest on today because it's the first episode where I explore a religious viewpoint when it comes to rituals around death, dying, and grief. Um, And I actually plan on bringing people of different cultures and faiths to discuss their approach to death. So I'm super excited. On today's episode, I speak to Ariel Freetanzer about Jewish death and mourning rituals. Ariel completed an individualized master's degree in NYU, concentrated in Judaic studies, bioethics, and social work with the goal of becoming an interfaith chaplain. And since then, she's been traveling the country with her husband, offering workshops, presentations, and trainings to help families and communities engage in value-based end-of-life conversations and cope with illness, death, and grief. Now, please join me in welcoming Ariel as we discuss Jewish death and mourning rituals. All right, Ariel, thank you so much again for being here with me today. Um, So let's just start and tell us a little bit about who you are and how you ended up doing what you're doing. Awesome. Thank you, Lorena. Thanks for having me. Um, So my name is Arielle Friedtanzer. I was born and raised in Los Angeles, um, raised in a conservative Jewish household, went to Jewish day schools uh, through college. Um, I did my undergraduate degree at Columbia University and the Jewish Theological Seminary at the List College Joint Program. Um, And I did my master's degree at NYU in the Gallatin School of Individualized Study. Um, There, I received an individualized master's in Judaic Studies, Bioethics, and Social Work. Um, And I finished that in May 2018, and since then have been traveling the country with my husband. Uh, We've been mostly just exploring. Um, but it's given us a chance to um, meet different communities and for me to engage those communities of all ages and sizes um, and religions in value-based end-of-life conversations. Okay, okay. And what made you want to go that route? Um, since I was little, really as, as long as I can remember, um, I've always been ready to attend a funeral. Um, I know that sounds sort of funny to say. <laughs> But I feel like by the time I was in college, I'd probably been to two dozen funerals. Mm. Um, it wasn't because I had that many people who were very close to me pass away. Thank God that wasn't something that happened. Um, but I really kind of jumped at the chance to always go with my parents if they went to one. So whether it was a family friend's parent or grandparent um, or a friend of mine's grandparent um, or another relative or friend, it was really just a chance for me to kind of have closure on that relationship, um, even if I wasn't really close to them. And it also gave me a chance to learn about who they were. Um, I don't think I could have put into words then that this was something I really liked doing. It was sort of in hindsight when I realized that not everybody was like me um, and that most people hadn't been to this many funerals in in their entire lifetimes, let alone before college, um, that I realized it was sort of a unique start. Um, And I was also really, really close to my grandparents. 
so that was sort of, I think, the the most formative piece of how I got into this work. Um, I had individual and unique and special relationships with each of my grandparents. Um, unfortunately, they've all passed away at this point. Um, but I had really the, the relationships that I had with them both in life and in death were really different. Um, Mm. so with my grandma, Fanny, um, I didn't get to go to her funeral in New York. I was 11 and, um, she passed away and she had been sick for many years and I got used to visiting her. I visited her every weekend with my grandfather. Um, I was one of the last people that she recognized before she passed away. She unfortunately lived with Alzheimer's and Parkinson's. Um, and she passed away the day before Yom Kippur. So traditionally on Yom Kippur, the day of atonement, um, the Shiva or the the morning period stops, it gets cut short. And, um, that in in particular for, um, observant Jews is really kind of a difficult place to be in because you know, never really get the chance to mourn. Um, but in this case, because I hadn't gotten to go to New York, um, my, my parents did a turnaround flight from LA to New York and back in 24 hours. Mm -hmm. Um, and so they decided not to take us to the funeral, which I think was the right decision for them. Um, and I'm not judging that decision at all. I think a lot of parents make choices like that, yeah. but it wasn't until later in life when I realized that that really didn't give me the closure on that relationship that I needed. Hmm. Uh, and, um, the relationship for her husband, my grandpa Ezra was totally different. Um, there he was buried. He lived in Los Angeles. He was buried in New York. I lived in New York at the time, went to the funeral there, flew home and sat Shiva, which I'll explain in a yeah. bit. I, um, <laughs> with my family in LA. Um, and my rabbi, I remember commenting during the Shiva that it was one of the, the most fun Shiva home she'd ever been to. Um, cause it was just like full of life and right. he had lived to his late eighties and he died peacefully in his sleep. Um, it was a way that sort of, we all wish to go. Um, he even put his teeth in that night, which he did not do normally. Wow. So it was like, you know, he knew <laughs> he was something ready. was happening. <laughs> totally. Um, so they're like, we couldn't have asked for something better for him. And, um, and so that was a, a really positive experience around right. his loss. Um, for my grandma, Lucy, it was totally different. Um, so she, she and my grandpa Ulu lived in LA. Uh, they were living together in the same room at an, a nursing home. And when she passed away and she passed away pretty suddenly and she had been sick kind of chronically. Um, so when she passed away suddenly also, we really viewed it as a blessing for her. Um, my grandfather of course was completely distraught and, um, was totally cognitively sound. So he really experienced that grief and that loss in the most heartbreaking ways. Um, we did a, a funeral, sorry, we did a memorial in LA Um, and then we did a funeral in New York where she was going to be buried and we did the memorial in LA so that my grandfather could be at it because he couldn't travel. Um, we came back, we did Shiva with my aunt and uncle and my grandfather. And it was really also like, it was a very sad time for him and to watch him go through that. But it was so joyful because she had died in such a peaceful way that Mm -hmm. we really couldn't, couldn't grieve that part of it if that makes sense. We were definitely grieving her loss. Um, right. She was a tiny powerhouse. Mm-hmm. <laughs> like to say. That's cute. So um, during any of these deaths of your grandparents, were you already doing this end of life, life work? Oh, great question. So um, for those first three, 
Um, I actually wasn't really. Mm-hmm. Um, I mean, my, my grandma Lucy passed away in December of 2018. Um, I'm sorry, December. Of t- my grandma Lucy passed away in December of 2017. Mm-hmm. Um, and I was already in my master's program, um, nearly finishing my master's program. So I was definitely in this world and I had already done um, 400 clinical units of chaplaincy training. Mm-hmm. Um, and I was already in my second 400 unit 400 hour unit of that. Um, so I was definitely getting this experience and I was really open to having these conversations. Um, when my grandpa Ulu died, uh, he actually died exactly 10 days after my grandma Lucy. Mm -hmm. So he sat the entire traditional week of Shiva for her and mourned her and then died the night he finished. Um, and for that, it was absolutely like the most surreal spiritual beautiful thing that I've ever experienced. Um, and I don't, as a chaplain, I also actually don't really consider myself a spiritual person. Mm -hmm. Um, but this was just sort of that epitome of what a good death could be. Mm. Um, I don't say that only because he didn't have to live without her, which was sort of our biggest fear, but more so because about a year earlier I had sat down with him, um, and had a conversation about his values at the end of life. Mm. So he had also been chronically ill and he had been in and out of the hospital a few times. Um, he had a lot of trouble breathing. And so he had been intubated twice, um, in about six months each time for 12 days. Um, and both times we thought this is it. You know, we Mm kind of said our goodbyes. We wrote letters, we read letters to him. We kind of made that closure. Um, and then he came back. (laughs) and you know medical intervention saved him my parents and my aunt and uncle making decisions saved him Mm -hmm. those were were right choices that were made um and ultimately it he didn't want to live in pain but he most importantly didn't want to live without my grandmother so as long as my grandmother was alive he was going to do anything it took to be there with her um so i had gotten to have this conversation with him and it was after his second stint of being in the hospital and being intubated. And I played a game called go wish with him, which I absolutely love. Um, and so I go wish is a great game. Um, you can find it online, Mm -hmm. (laughs) just Google go wish. Um, it is a deck of cards that has 35, um, values that someone might choose for the end of their life and Mm -hmm. a wild card. Mm -hmm. And the idea of the game um, in one way of playing it is that you narrow those 35 things down to 10. Okay. And they're all really hard. I usually, when I play this with groups, they're like, they're, how am I supposed to pick these? They're 35 <laughs> things. I want all of them. Right. Um, and so it's really hard to narrow down and, and to pick those. And it's hard for me and I play it all the time. Mm-hmm. Um, but I played it with my grandfather and he was the first, and I think still the only person that I've played it with who picked his on the, tr- on the first try. Oh, wow. Like he knew what he wanted. He knew exactly what he wanted. He was the most controlling, stubborn human being. (laughs) He knew exactly what he wanted. Um, And I I showed him his cards. You know, he had picked those top 10. I said, you're going into a family meeting. Make sure that, that you know what you have in mind, what things are most important to you. And I had taken a picture of those. And at the end of his life, really when we knew that like this was the, the last couple days he was going to live. Mm-hmm. I looked at those cards and we made sure that he got all of them. Wow. And it was 
mostly because of that conversation that we were able to know. Like so many of those things he took control of, getting his financial affairs in order, mm-hmm. saying goodbye to the people. All of that was in his control. But not being attached to machines, that was something we had control over. Right. Not dying at home. He wanted to die and he told us that he wanted to die where my grandma died. Mm-hmm. That's what he wanted and that's mm-hmm. what he got. Um, he wanted to be mentally aware. And, you know, with pain medication, that's something that's not always possible. Yeah. And as somebody who had been in pain and who had suffered so much in the last couple of years, it would have been very easy for us to say, you know, he, he needs to be medicated in some way. Um, his physician actually came by earlier in the day that he was, that he died and said, you know, he's really not in pain. Like I've, I've checked him. I've assessed this. Mm-hmm. It's amazing. Now of all times, he's not in pain. Um, Again, that was his control, you know, him making sure that he got what he wanted. But it was just a really beautiful thing for us to, for there to be 13 of us around him, to be surrounding him with love and kind of coaching him through the process of dying as we were coaching each other. Right. So do you think uh, if this death would have happened before you would have had the same kind of conversations? Would you even have known about that game? Um, I'm just curious how that impacted your family and how they approached the conversation of death and dying and someone actively dying in front of them. It was really different for each of us. Um, like there were 13 of us there, um, that included, I believe there were four caregivers there at the time and then nine family members. And I had been there for the six hours leading up to his death. Um, most of my family got there. I think about two to three hours before. And there was such a difference based on sort of the closure that each of us had come to with him. Mm-hmm. For my uncle, it was a lot more difficult, I think, to say goodbye. And when he came in, he said, you know, he's having trouble breathing. Why are we not taking him to the hospital? And I had made sure the day before in front of my aunt and in front of my mom to ask him, if you have trouble breathing, do you want to go back to the hospital? And he said, no, very Mm -hmm. clearly. So for us, it was more important to give him what he wanted. Um, but he also wasn't having trouble breathing. And that is a huge part of education that my mom, who used to be a nurse and I were able to really coach the family through it and say, do you see his respiration is slowing? It's, he's not struggling for air. Mm -hmm. He's taking, but this is a normal part of chain stokes breathing. This is what through. It's part of the dying process. It's absolutely normal. And so to be able to see that, I think my uncle had walked in and kind of worried about why we weren't taking him to the hospital. And then maybe half an hour or an hour later, my cousin walked in and asked the same thing. And my uncle then explained it to him. Mm-hmm. And it was really cool to see that process and to see the changes that were happening in the family as they recognized that he was going through an absolutely normal process. Um, did I ever imagine that we would go through that process? No. <laughs> <laughs> but I, I truly don't think, I don't think it's because of me that he was able to go through that process. Mm-hmm. I, like I said, that he had so much control over what his death looked like. Maybe me being feisty and not letting people override that mm-hmm. was part of it. Um, yeah. Although they still respected me by doing that because they could have said, you don't have authority, which was totally true. Um, and totally overridden me and he wouldn't have ended up with the death that he did. I, I don't think if it had been a few years earlier that he would have had such a peaceful death. Yeah. Wow. Well, 
first of all, I just want to say thank you so much for sharing all of those memories. And, you know, it's, I think it's beautiful that you were part of that and you helped, you advocated for them, which is huge. Most people, when they're dying, they don't have an advocate to make sure that they, you know, what they actually want done is being done. So, um, so going back to kind of the work that you do, um, you do value-based end-of-life conversation work. So I noticed that, and I thought that's interesting that the value-based is there. I'm just curious as to whether there's a difference between that and just like end-of-life work, or why do you call it value-based? Yeah, so um, I would say the reason I call it value-based is because there are so many different elements to end-of-life work. Um, there's the hands-on end-of-life work in healthcare, hospice, um, doula work. All of that is definitely end-of-life and hands-on. Then there's the legal piece of estates and wills and um, the documents. Um, The financial piece is huge. And I think most of the time when people do end-of-life planning or advanced care planning, and unfortunately, it doesn't happen nearly as often as it should. They're doing that kind of work. Like they kind of jump into it and say, okay, I need to figure out who my medical proxy is. I need to decide what my advanced care directive says. I need to figure out my will and my estate and my trusts and all of that. And then they never take it to a conversation with the people who are actually going to be making those decisions for them. Mm. So I kind of say to my parents all the time, you know, I, I care, of course, if you die, but I care more about what happens to you if you don't die. I want to know who's making those decisions. I want to know what decisions they should be making. And I want to make sure that my siblings and I are all on the same page about it, because I think that's where so much of this gets really muddy and horrible. I mean, families mm-hmm. are totally broken up over those kinds of decisions yes. at a time when they should be together. Yes. Um, so I think that's why I sort of distance it, because it's not end-of-life conversations based on the legal issues or the financial Mm -hmm. issues or those kinds of questions. It's more about figuring out what is important to me at the end of life. What do I value? Who do I value? How do I communicate these wishes? Um, And can I communicate them to the people who are going to make the decisions and those who aren't so that everybody knows what I want? Mm -hmm. I'm curious, how much of an impact in everyday conversation does death have? For example, as you're growing up, is it something that it was talked about? Uh, just in general, I'm curious how much it death is talked about in Judaism in general. Um, yeah. So in Judaism, death is a huge piece of our, um, our liturgy, our sort of mindset. Every year, as I mentioned, Yom Kippur um, earlier, Yom Kippur is the Day of Atonement. And the customs that we observe on Yom Kippur are supposed to imitate death. So we customarily wear white um, because generally people are buried in white, plain white shrouds. Um, we don't eat. We don't drink. Um, we don't bathe. We don't wear leather. Not that the leather necessarily connects to death. Um, but there's that, that element of kind of facing our mortality in a really visceral way. Mm-hmm. Um, and the idea is that we are praying to be signed into the book of life for another year. So oh. a lot of the, 
a lot of the liturgy that we say that we recite on that day really kind of imitates this recognition of our mortality and that God is the judge and God will decide if we get to live another year or not. And that's based on our deeds that we've hopefully atoned for, um, if our misdeeds. So it's definitely something that we talk about. Um, I also would say that because, because our, um, most of our rituals surrounding death have to be done in a minion, which is a group of 10 men or women, um, depending on your, on your community, if you observe 10 men or if it can be an egalitarian minion. Mm -hmm. Um, so much of that is done in community that it's from a really early age. I think people start to realize that they are a part of that community and that they also have an obligation to that community. So when somebody turns 13, man or woman, they're considered to be a part of that community. And as such, they have a responsibility to bury the dead, a responsibility to show up at a Shiva home and to support the mourners. Um, that they have this communal responsibility to be there when a mourner recites the mourner's Kaddish, which is um, a prayer that's customarily said right after the person dies, um, after the funeral and throughout the week of Shiva. And depending on the type of loss, it can be for up to 11 months. And then every year again on the the Hebrew anniversary of that person's death. So there's a lot sort of of hearing this. And at the end of every service, I would say in, I'm going to take a gander to say in every Jewish community around the world, in Mm -hmm. every language, every denomination, at the end of each service, you will hear the mourner's Kaddish recited. Um, And it's kind of a comforting thing to know that you could be somewhere else in the world on the anniversary of someone's death and walk in there and still be able to observe that yard site, that day of remembrance, mm. same way that you would back home. Wow. Okay. Um, so in terms of when someone is actively dying, um, what does that look like? Is there some sort of tradition? Uh, you mentioned something about the grieving process and how these uh, – Rituals, I guess, are done in a group of 10. Is there something similar to when someone is like on their deathbed? Um, or it's just, you know, family comes and goes and says their goodbyes. Yeah, I think um, the the ritual of having 10 people around when somebody dies is is not there. That's not, not a thing. Um, but there is a custom to not leave the dying person alone. Um, part of that is that if you're, if there's something inhibiting the person from dying, you are allowed to remove that. So if, um, there's this famous story in the Talmud, in the rabbinic teachings that says that if a wood chopper is chopping wood outside and the noise is preventing the person from dying, you can ask the wood chopper to stop chopping. <laughs> yeah. Do we know that that's the thing that's keeping them from dying? Wow not. Um, huh. That could be a much longer conversation in terms of medical aid and dying, which I know we've talked about. Yeah. Something I'm very interested in. Um, so that becomes a much bigger issue. But there is this custom to be there, um, both to be present to the person who's dying, because until they are dead, they are living. That's sort of how Judaism sees it. Mm-hmm. So um, conversations in the room should not be mundane. They should be attending to the person who's dying Mm -hmm. or something about, you know, if you need to care for them in some way, of course, that's fine. Um, But it really shouldn't be a space to eat or drink. It shouldn't be a place to discuss, you know, discuss things that really aren't important to that moment. Mm -hmm. Um, 
And um, traditionally, there is the the custom of the person who is dying to recite the vidui, which is the confession. And interestingly, just to bring it full circle, mm -hmm. the vidui is something that we recite multiple times on Yom Kippur. Okay, so it's not a personal confession. It's something that every one who is Jewish reads. So well, well, tell me more, because I'm confused. <laughs> <laughs> so I haven't looked at the liturgy recently, uh -huh. unfortunately. I should definitely read up on it. Um, but on Yom Kippur, a lot of our liturgy is communal. And so we say, we sinned. We um, spoke badly about people. Everything is done in, in a plural sense. Okay. Um, and I believe that the vidui that we recite on, on a deathbed is individualized, um, mm. just so that it really makes it personal. And the idea also is that it's sort of hard in many cases, especially in the medicalized world that we live in now, to know when that moment of death is going to happen. Um, you know, we were blessed in my grandfather's case to really watch that progression, mm -hmm. but we would have had to do a confession 48 hours before he died because that was really the last moment when he was speaking. Okay. So had we known that that was going to happen, we could have given him that opportunity. Um, other than that, I would say the, the sort of biggest custom at the end um, for the dying person is to recite the Shema which is a central prayer to all movements in Judaism, to all the liturgy. Um, and that translated says, Hear, O Israel, the Lord our God, the Lord is one. Mm -hmm. And in my mind, that's sort of the mourner acknowledging that this is God, like this is God's doing, this is in, in sort of this plan, mm -hmm. um, and acknowledging their place within that world that is God's. Okay, wow. Um, so then after the person dies, what comes immediately after? Great question. Um, <laughs> so the, the person should not be left alone from the moment that they die, um, even if they were alone before that. Do you know why? Point, like, is there a I think reason the idea, behind that? If I remember correctly, I think it's because the soul is still there. Um, mm. And so you want to be able to to accompany them. And the other piece is that you don't want to take a chance that that body could be vandalized or okay. ab abused in some way. Right. So there's like the practical and the spiritual to that. Mm -hmm. um, so the person who um, who sort of stands by and and makes sure that they're accompanied is called the shomer. Um, it that's the male form of it. So it's somebody who is literally guarding the body. Um, and in many communities, in many cases. Um, that's done by the funeral home or by the mortuary. Um, in some cases it's done by synagogue members. It can be, it's usually a volunteered, um, position. And so people might take turns. Family members can sometimes do it. Um, I was very grateful to be able to do it for an hour for my grandfather. So it's really just a chance to kind of be there and to recite Psalms and talk to the person if you want to, mm -hmm. you know, whatever you, you believe happens. Um, but it's just a, a chance to kind of be there and to to accompany them. And anybody who is present at the time, at that single moment of death, mm -hmm. says, Baruch Dayan Emet, which means praised is the true judge. Let me say that again. Praised is the true judge. That, I don't know if that strikes you as uncomfortably as it strikes me. Yeah. I was like, <laughs> what? <laughs> right? I mean, huh. it, that's like a it's a hard sentence to say in like the moment that your loved one is now taken from you. Yeah. 
right? So that right. is, I think that's like one of the most controversial pieces of the mourning process. Um, I would say otherwise, I feel like Judaism's got it pretty much 100% right in terms of mirroring what the mourning process looks like. But that sentence still rocks me every time I hear it. Um, and that happens usually in the moment that somebody does Kriya, which is tearing, literally means tearing. So at that moment, they would tear an article of clothing that they're wearing. And from the dead part, the, the no, dead no, no. Per- Oh, that the person's wearing. Okay. Yeah, exactly. So if when I was there for my grandpa, my grandfather, both my uncle and my dad, um, tore their shirts and my grandfather had done the same thing when my grandmother died. It doesn't have to happen in the moment of death. Um, Mm -hmm. traditionally that's how it happens, but it also can happen at the funeral. Um, before the funeral begins, often a rabbi will come in and we'll do Kriya. That's what they call it. Doing Kriya. Cause that's the, the English Hebrew mm-hmm. combination. Yeah. Um, and so they'll come in and they will recite that with them and then they'll tear and in more liberal communities. So in conservative reform, reconstructionists, um, they will sometimes give you the option of a, bl- a black ribbon. Um, mm. and you pin that onto your clothes and then you tear the ribbon so that you don't actually have to tear your clothing. Um, but there's something really powerful in actually tearing your clothing yeah what's like, that about what's the symbolism behind that it's the idea that that the fabric of your life has now been torn wow and it is cannot be repaired in that way wow. um and and i think part of it also is just like the catharsis of literally ripping something open mm-hmm. that you know if we could just break things <laughs> i'm sure that would be just as useful wow um, but have it is so visceral to kind of have that experience of like ripping something and knowing that you get that energy out into something else. Hmm. That's interesting. Getting the yeah. energy out into something else. Yeah. Wow. And and for mourners, so in that moment when um in the moment of death when this happens, everybody recites that phrase, Baruch Dayan Haemet. Um, but only the direct mourners. So that means a son, a daughter, sister, brother, mother, father, or spouse. There's seven direct mourners in Judaism. Only they are the ones that tear. Um, So that also leaves the rest of us in sort of this kind of limbo of not necessarily being able to grieve in the same way. We can talk about that more in terms of the actual grieving process after um, the body is buried. But I'm interested to know if it's only the rules are kind of only between those seven you know, as you said, spouse, father, etc. Mm-hmm. Um, okay, so what what happens after after the tearing? You said the tearing of the clothing could happen at bedside or at the funeral, but exactly. before I guess before we jump to the funeral, um, is there anything else that I we missed in between? <laughs> <laughs> yeah, so there's actually that space of time between. Um, the moment of death and the funeral has its own name in Judaism. Wow. Um, So that's called Aninut, which means deep sorrow. Mm. And the idea is that Judaism really reflects that human experience of being able to function normally, um, of really being in such an immense sorrow um, that you can't really speak to the mourners. You're not supposed to try to comfort them. even whether it's in that moment, right afterwards, and in the same room, you're not supposed to speak to them and try to comfort them. Um, 
but even afterwards that our instinct is to try to reach out and to yeah. help, you know, like we, the intentions are good. Um, but so often I always hear people kind of saying that they're walking around in sort of a daze, mm-hmm. um, and just not being able to function normally. And I'm, I'm grateful that Judaism sees that. Um, there's actually a text in Leviticus that says that Aaron was speechless after his two sons were killed. He was silent. And that word is so powerful. Um, because that's, that's sort of what we need to get into. And often being in silence with mourners is the best way to be. Um, right. Cause there's nothing you can really say to make it feel better. And exactly. oftentimes we feel the pressure to say things and it's like, kind of pointless. And and then we make it worse. Yeah, exactly. <laughs> Most of the time, the person just wants to be seen and maybe hugged or whatever, but we don't need to hear anything. <laughs> exactly. Yeah. Exactly. And, and Judaism totally acknowledges that. Um, that there are day-to-day obligations that observant Jews have to follow. So there are a lot of commandments that they do every day. Um, even the, the requirement to pray three times a day mm-hmm. that not at most Jews, I would say, I would guess, um, don't observe this, mm-hmm. but for Jews who do, as soon as they become an Onen, um, somebody who's experienced that loss and has not yet buried, okay. they are completely absolved of those responsibilities. So okay. we call that the positive commandments. So anything that they are supposed to do, they are absolved of those requirements. Um, they obviously can't go out and murder. They can't <laughs> steal. <laughs> those are the right, negative right, right, commandments. Right. Don't do those. Yes. Um, okay. That makes sense. But it's, it's a really interesting thing because, um, and I think it's one of the most compassionate things that Judaism does, um, both that and the requirement or the, um, I would say the encouragement to bury as soon as possible. It's really compassionate because that limbo period of knowing someone is gone and not yet having buried them is so difficult for so many people. Mm-hmm. Um, and I hear that from non-Jewish friends all the time, that it's that limbo of like, having them there for a few days or having them there for weeks and not, you're like making all these arrangements, but you haven't yet said goodbye to that person. Yeah. Um, that's so hard. And so I, I think having this space and kind of being absolved of anything except thinking about that person and mm-hmm. about your needs and about whatever you might need for the funeral. Mm-hmm. Um, hopefully those things are pre-planned and you don't have to do a lot of preparation, but um, that's, it's really a good thing that Judaism allows us that space for. Do you think um, the fact that there's kind of a pause of daily rituals um, during that time, do you think that helps in the grieving process as opposed to, I don't know, someone who doesn't observe these things and right after death, all these people text them or call them and they're just like, you know what I mean? Like the entire time just constantly busy and staying busy to stop thinking about it. Whereas that kind of puts a pause on everything and it really forces you to kind of sit with your feelings. Do you think that has a positive impact on, I guess, how long you grieve for or just how the whole experience is seen? Um, I personally, I think it's really helpful Mm -hmm. um, because at the end of the day, people are going to do whatever is best for them. Right. So Somebody who wants to keep their mind busy is going to make all the arrangements for the funeral and figure out all the food, even though they have no responsibility to feed anybody. Um, And they might still go about their daily work and they might do their chores and, 
if it were me, I'd probably wash dishes all day because I feel like that <laughs> takes my mind off things. Um, but then for somebody who doesn't want to busy themselves doing that, they now are absolved of that responsibility. Mm-hmm. And I think that that's a really nice way to give them permission mm-hmm. to do whatever it is they need, whether they need to sleep, whether they need to sit and cry, mm-hmm. whether they need to scream, whether they need to run, like whatever it is, it kind of gives them that space and that permission. Mm-hmm. Um, yeah. <laughs> okay. Okay. Yeah. Plain and simple. Cool. So, so how long does it take uh, for a body to be buried? Is there a specific amount of time or it just depends? Um, it's supposed to be as soon as possible. So that there's that leeway um, mm-hmm. to allow family members, if they need to travel in to be there, um, there is definitely an allowance for it. I would say, I'm so everything I'm giving you today is as a conservative Jew. So there are definitely accommodations that are made in my community that would not be made in the Orthodox community. And so Mm -hmm. I don't want to speak to what they do. Mm -hmm. Um, I would say in most, most communities that I'm familiar with, they will absolutely allow time for somebody to fly from across the world for somebody to, I don't know if they're in some sort of camp or something like if something needs to be, um, held off if a burial needs to be held off, they'll wait. Mm -hmm. Um, within a reasonable amount of time. So the idea is if you can bury in, I mean, in Israel, they bury same day, almost always. Wow. Um, So you can't bury on the Sabbath. So from Friday at sundown until Saturday at nightfall, you cannot bury. Um, You can't bury on a holiday. So during Passover, you wouldn't be able to bury. Um, You cannot bury on Sukkot or, I mean, I'm just listing other holidays. Mm-hmm. Um, you can bury on Hanukkah cause it's not a major holiday. Um, <laughs> but there are a lot of restrictions around when you can and can't bury. Um, and I would say that as soon as you are able to, that's when you should bury. So how is the body prepared? Are there like specific things that are done? Yes. Great question. Um, again, in a traditional, um, Jewish burial, and this yeah. does not happen with all Jewish burials by mm-hmm. any means. But the most traditional way is that there's a process called tahara done. And tahara literally means purification. The idea is that when a person dies, their body becomes impure. Um, so I, I didn't give you any of the customs sort of that happen around the room when a person dies in terms of like the window getting open. And Let's do it. Okay, pause. We'll come back. The, I want to hear all about that. I, I don't know the problem. Is, so I've never done Tahara. Um, okay. I've seen, I've witnessed it in pretend, if that makes sense. Like I've gone to conferences where they will oh, okay. demonstrate it, uh-huh. um, but it's not on an actual body. So I don't know all the customs that happen. Um, but the basic idea is that the body is impure and we want to purify it as much as possible for burial. Okay. So we, um, we don't embalm. Um, we don't put any sort of chemicals into our bodies. The body goes as naturally as it came out. Um, but we will use water. There's like a lot of water used in Tahara. Um, and a person is basically laid out on a table and there's a team of, um, in most cases, their own gender doing this process. And they are very respectful about keeping the person covered, um, making sure that they're kept modest and that, um, Anybody who doesn't isn't part of the team is not in the room. Um, things so are. These kind are of kept. professionals doing this, or the family? Um, it oh, usually it's not the family. Okay. Um, in most cases, it's volunteers from the community. Oh, so, okay. Um, there's like a 
Um, it's called the Hever Kadisha, which literally means a holy community. And they are called in when somebody dies. And that can come from one synagogue. In my synagogue, um, there's a Hever Kadisha just from, from that synagogue. In some communities, there's a Hever Kadisha that serves the entire community. So mm. um, it's, it's a really powerful thing also when you have members of all different movements who are then serving on this together mm-hmm. um, and kind of deci- deciding as a team what their standard is um, for doing it because there are different practices. Um, so they, you know, come in and they purify the body and they recite all sorts of liturgy, um, while they're doing that process. And there's always someone standing at the head that I always know, um, to kind of be responsible because the idea is that the soul is resting around the head, um, at that time. And so you want to give them that space. Um, but you're just kind of making that a sacred space and no one walks behind the head at that point. So the soul is still there. So how far into after death? does this usually take place? The Tahara process? Right, right. The, the washing and... Yeah. Um, the, it can happen... I mean, it could happen immediately, uh-huh. essentially. Like, it could... Usually, the body gets taken to a funeral home or a mortuary, and mm-hmm. then the Tahara team gets called in. So, okay. it could happen within a few hours, or okay. if the funeral's not going to be for a few days, it could happen in a few days. Um, again, it also depends on when the Sabbath falls. Mm, so they wouldn't be able to do that process on the Sabbath either. Um, and the idea also is that if there, um, not really blemishes, but if there's blood of any kind or any kind of, um, other liquids, I don't know. Um, you know, that they're trying to kind of clean up and make that person as presentable as possible. Um, and then after that, they are again, traditionally, it doesn't happen in, in all communities, um, they're traditionally buried in plain linen shrouds um, so that the idea is it doesn't matter if you were rich or poor in life. You are buried in the same thing. Um, you're buried in a plain shroud and in a plain pine box. And that means everybody's equal when they die. So are there any causes of death where all of the things that you just mentioned don't really apply because of the way that the person died? That's a really good question. Um <laughs> As far as I know, with suicide, that might be the only difference. Mm-hmm. Um, I'll be totally honest. I and I don't know if tahara can be done on somebody who's died from suicide. Mm-hmm. Um, I do know that they get. I believe it actually can be because um, the idea is that the person. So traditionally. I'm going to back up. Mm-hmm. You can cut off. Back up. <laughs> back up. Okay. Um, traditionally, the understanding is that um, a person who dies from suicide um, is not allowed to be buried in a Jewish cemetery because they've taken their own life and they're not allowed to do so. That we, oh. God is the only one who gets to take our lives. Okay. Um, but in practice, because of what we know about suicide and the causes that we often lead to it, we have to make allowances for the fact that people are not in their right mind in most cases when they die by suicide. And so um, the rabbis say that because they were sick before they made that choice, they can still be buried in the Jewish cemetery. Mm. So as far as I know, um, in this day and age, somebody who dies by suicide would still be allowed to have Tahara done for them and to have Shmirah done for them. So the guarding and the purification Mm -hmm. Um, 
but traditionally by text, we usually don't offer comfort to the mourners of somebody who dies by suicide and we don't bury them in the traditional way. Um, Mm. but yeah, we make allowances for it because I think, I think over centuries, the rabbis have really understood that it's, it's not something that a person chooses in their right mind. And do you know if organ donation is allowed? Yes. So organ donation is very much encouraged in the Jewish community. Um, Again, I say generalized, Mm -hmm. um, and that does account for all the movements. I know that for a fact. There are, of course, people who don't agree with it. um, But in general, it is allowed because it's a life-sustaining or life-saving measure. And in Judaism, the one of our highest obligations is pikuach nefesh, which means the saving of a life. Mm. So anything that we can do to save a life um, should be done. And we are actually commanded to break all other Jewish laws with the exception of three, and that's murder, idolatry, and incest. Mm. Everything else must be broken in order to save a person's life. Wow. Okay. So, um, yeah. So absolutely. Organ donation is highly encouraged. Um, that said, donating a body for science. That was my next question. Could. Yeah. <laughs> uh, usually it is. Um, is, is actually, well, it's definitely accepted by some movements um, mm-hmm. and definitely by some rabbis. Mm-hmm. Overall, it is not the same thing as donating organs for a direct donation. All right. Thank you for clarifying that. Um, so as far as the burial, tell us a little bit more about what goes into that. The burial is considered in Judaism to be the greatest act of loving kindness that we can do because it's something that can never be repaid by the mourner. So it's our obligation to show up as that minion of 10 people who are able to help bury that person. Um, and in fact, it's if somebody has no family members who can actually bury, um, the community has to show up and be those family members and has to fulfill all those same obligations. Um, the exception might be reciting the Kaddish because the Kaddish, as I said, is recited only by those seven mourners. Mm. So if you're not a direct relation, traditionally you don't recite it. That said, there are plenty of people who do recite it, um, who recite it for friends who've passed or uncles or grandparents or for Holocaust survivors who had no one to say it for them. That's um, the confession thing? No, no, the mourner's cottage is just a prayer um, that okay, said, okay. I actually may not have specified it before. Um, so thank you for clarifying. <laughs> um, so the mourner's cottage is a prayer written in Aramaic. And that is traditionally recited at the burial for the first time. And then is recited um, after, sorry, after the, the body is buried, then it's recited for the first time. And then it's recited at every um, service in that week of Shiva. So tr- in most Shiva homes that happens either in the morning or in the evening or both. Mm. And so that the, the purpose of coming together in a Shiva home as a minion, as a community is to specifically allow the mourner to recite the Kaddish. And that's because they can only do it in a group of 10. So if somebody is home by themselves, they can't. And that's a really powerful thing as a community to say, this is my obligation. I have to show up Mm -hmm. for them so that they can mourn in the way that they need to mourn. Um, And again, if somebody doesn't have relatives, the community members are supposed to go as their family members and sit Shiva for them. Um, And I'll get into the Shiva stuff later, I promise. (laughs) (laughs) Um, But the interesting thing about this prayer is that 
one, it's really powerful if you've grown up around it and you don't say it until you've lost a direct relation, it's really powerful to hear and then to have to shift that all of a sudden when you actually do recite it. Hmm. Um, but there's it because it's an Aramaic, most people don't understand it to begin with. Um, but the premise of it basically is praising God. There's no mention of death in the prayer at all. There's no mention of the loved one. It is all about praising God. And that's really, like I mentioned with the the earlier phrase of blessed is the true judge. That's a really hard thing to do when you are grieving your loved one. You literally just put them in the ground yeah. and now you have to praise God. Yeah. Ouch. Yeah. Yeah. <laughs> and you're angry, usually. Exactly. Yeah. I, I, right. Exactly. So it's it's really, that's a hard thing to do for some and for others, it's really comforting because they know that that ritual exists. And so they just have something to follow and don't have to think about it. Mm, that um, makes sense. Yeah. And then the only other thing that happens um, at the cemetery is that generally um, the com- the comforter, so anybody who's there from the community who's not a direct mourner, will turn to the mourners and will say in Hebrew, may God comfort you along with the other mourners of Zion and Jerusalem. And so the idea is that we are all grieving this together um, and that there are people all over the world who are mourning losses Mm -hmm. and that we are also mourning the destruction of the temple in Jerusalem, which is something that we mourn at pretty much every happy occasion. So we we remember the sad thing. So in this, we're kind of coming together to remember that. (laughs) Okay. Okay. So what happens after that to to the grieving, the grievers? Right. Grieve. Is that a word? Sure. I don't the know. Mourners, the grievers. Absolutely. The bereaved. The, all sure. Grievers. Yes. There we go. <laughs> so the process of Shiva starts immediately after the burial. Usually that's done at um, the mourner's home. So if a child um, is mourning their parent who passed away, it usually is done at the child's home. It could be that families sit together if there are multiple siblings or multiple um, mourners and they want to sit together. Oftentimes, unfortunately, Families are not always getting along, especially by that point. <laughs> so um, they sit, might sit separately. Mm-hmm. Um, sometimes people, I mean, in our case, we flew back from New York to L.A. and sat Shiva in L.A., even though the funeral was in New York. Mm, so okay. um, there's a lot of allowance for all of that. Um, at that point, though, things are still really changed for the mourner. So traditionally, of course, um, they sit on lower chairs. Or sometimes sit on wooden stools so that they're lower and they're uncomfortable. Um, They get food served to them. They cover the mirrors in their house. They will might um, wear their ripped clothing. What's the the mirror thing about? Sorry to interrupt you. That's okay. (laughs) Um, The mirror thing is about not um, not looking at yourself. That you're not supposed to be concerned with how you look during that. That you oftentimes people don't don't most of the time people don't shave Mm -hmm. and often they don't even bathe for the entire week. Okay. Um, I know some people who will wear like one outfit underneath their ripped clothing and they'll change the under outfit, but they'll wear the same thing outside, Mm -hmm. even if they're not showering so that Mm -hmm. they don't necessarily smell, but you know, they're, they're still following customs. Um, and the idea with this is that it's so different from your normal life that often our inclination when people are in our home is to serve them, to greet them. We are not supposed to do this. We're supposed to be served and taken care of and, uh, comforted, but it's interesting. I'm only realizing now it's so much in acts and not in words mm. that really the only words that we say 
are in that line that I told you that people recite at the cemetery. Other than that, we don't say anything traditionally. And in fact, the, (coughs) sorry, in fact, the rabbis, um, I would say dictate to us that we should not speak in a house of mourning until the mourner speaks to us. So it's like sort of this interesting game of chicken, (laughs) but the idea is you have no idea what that mourner is thinking. You have no idea what the mourner needs. Mm-hmm. And when we have the inclination to speak, as we said before, yeah. will you say the wrong thing? Right. <laughs> so just shut it and serve them. And if they need to talk to you, they will. Exactly. Yeah. <laughs> and once they do, it's okay to say, you know, can you share with me a story about the person you lost? Mm-hmm. And using their name, I think that's not a Jewish custom, yeah. but... Um, I think using their name is a really important thing because you're acknowledging that they were a person, mm-hmm. that they're not gone. They're not invisible. They're, um, you know, they didn't not exist. Yeah. And so being able to acknowledge that it, it also, um, I think Jewishly that the idea is it does elevate their name, that it elevates their soul, um, when you speak their name. Mm-hmm. And so the idea is share those stories, laugh, cry. All of those things are totally okay. Um, and, I know a lot, like I said, in, in our Shiva home, the rabbi said, this is such a joyful Shiva that we were laughing and telling jokes and making fun of what the things my grandfather used to do. <laughs> like we did it when he was alive. Why wouldn't we do it right. when he was gone? <laughs> right. Nothing's changed. <laughs> exactly. Um, so yeah, to try to like kind of sit with their grief and not distract from it, not detract mm-hmm. from it. Um, don't be afraid to cry with them. Don't try to justify the death. Mm-hmm. That's a really big thing for me. So how long is this process usually? Is there a certain amount of days? That should have been the first thing I said. <laughs> Shiva literally means seven in oh, Hebrew. Okay. Um, and so the idea is that you sit for a week of mourning. Now, as I said before, you don't sit Shiva and you don't bury on the Sabbath, on Shabbat. So um, in every week, there's always going to be one Sabbath that comes in there. Right. So usually uh, mourners will get up from Shiva. I know I put that in air quotes and you could see it, but the listeners can't. Um, <laughs> the, they, they get up from Shiva um, on like a Friday afternoon and then they go back or sit down to Shiva on Saturday night or on Sunday morning, depending on the time of day and the season and how late Shabbat would end. Um, so the idea is you have, you sit this seven day period and you're technically not sitting on Shabbat, but you are still a mourner during Shabbat. Um, Interestingly, Judaism actually says that you're supposed to um, be part of the community and you're supposed to kind of hide your your uh, public mourning during Shabbat, um, which huh. as a, an end-of-life consultant, I absolutely say is not a thing. Yeah. Uh, <laughs> as a Jew, I'm sure that there would be a lot of discussion around <laughs> it. But um, it's a really interesting thing because you can't just hide that. Um but it's the idea that privately you are going to be mourning, but that publicly you should, you can change your clothes, you can shower, um, you don't have to fall into those kind of normal rituals. Hmm. Um, but so it lasts seven days, except in the cases where um, if there's a holiday, it ends the Shiva. So like I said before, when my grandmother passed away, um, my parents flew to New York, flew back, and they didn't get to sit Shiva because Yom Kippur started. So whereas on Shabbat, on the Sabbath, you would come up from Shiva and then go back down to Shiva, when a holiday interjects, it cuts the Shiva off. How come? Like, why can't you just go back to it? 
because, well, one, in some cases, our holidays are long. Okay. Um, so we have some holidays that are uh, one day long, some that are two, some that are eight. Okay. So um, that's one reason that practically, you know, figuring out how long that would have to be and how to communicate would be interesting. But um, the bigger reason is because our holidays are supposed to be joyful times. Mm-hmm. Um, and so when you obviously there's that understanding that you can't necessarily be joyful and be mourning mm-hmm. at the same time. And so the joy takes precedence. Um, there is a, um, a story in our, in our, um, teachings that says that if you're coming to an intersection and there's a funeral procession and a bridal procession coming to the same intersection, the bridal procession goes first. Mm. And the idea with that is that joy always takes precedence over mourning. Mm-hmm. But as the mourner, that sucks. Yeah. Like, yeah, absolutely. Really hard. Especially if, I mean, there are a lot of families who don't sit the full seven days. Some people will sit just the afternoon after the burial. Some people will sit for two or three days. Some people will sit the whole seven. Um, I often think, and and have had heard a lot of rabbis echo that Jews like to do right in death, even if they don't in life. And so even if they don't observe anything during their lifetimes. When it comes to death, they want to be absolutely strict about it. <laughs> um, and whether that's the person who's dying mm-hmm. and wants to do everything right, make sure it's by the book or uh, the people who are grieving. And so it's interesting to me that people often do sit those full seven days. And I think it's a really nice way to kind of transition. Um, the biggest thing I didn't say, I, I don't believe, is that you don't go to work. So mm. that's like a huge cutoff for a lot of people yeah. to to have that seven days of being at home, being catered to, not working, um, not getting to focus on how they look, mm-hmm. and um, to have that. And in some way, I mean, this sounds horrible, but to look forward to that, to like look forward to knowing that you have this ritual available to you, and then have a holiday come and cut it off, and now you have nothing. Yeah, that's really tough. Yeah. Um, when you mentioned that, you know, it's not encouraged to mourn in public and you think that that's kind of backwards because you should be able to mourn wherever. Can you think of any other things like that, whether it's like a rule that exists that maybe doesn't really that you believe shouldn't be there? The only other things that I think are kind of counterintuitive are those two like those phrases um, or the phrase of saying blessed is the true judge Mm. and then reciting a morning prayer that is all about praising God. Okay. Um, But I don't, I think that there's like a reasoning behind both of those that is kind of beyond my capacity, Mm -hmm. if that makes sense. Like it's, I guess what I mean is um, I think there's a theological basis to both of those. I just don't ascribe to that theology. Mm. So, um, yeah, so I think the only one I think kind of doesn't make sense is this public and private mourning. Mm-hmm. Um, but that said, this is also something that exists in other faiths. Um, I don't know much about it. I do not claim to be an expert at all, but I had done some research into, um, Muslim burial and, and mourning practices mm-hmm. to see if they overlapped with Judaism at all. And one of one of the things that I learned is that traditionally you can publicly mourn for three days. And then after that you can continue to privately mourn, but it shouldn't be public because it shows that you're questioning Allah's decision. Oh, so again, not an expert. Yeah. Um, mm-hmm. but 
that was the the understanding that I took. So I think it's a sort of similar thing that you're sort of recognizing that things happen in different ways Mm -hmm. and we don't always agree that there might be a bigger plan. Right. So are there any other things that we're missing that we haven't covered yet? The other few things are pretty quick. Mm -hmm. Um, So the next step after, so we've gone through the burial, um, Aninut, which is that deep sorrow period. Um, Nope, I'm backing up. Okay, so we've gone through the death Uh and then Aninut, which is the deep sorrow period, and then the burial followed by Shiva. And so after that week of Shiva ends, then we enter into the period called Shloshim, which means 30. And that's 30 days um, for the mourners. Again, those direct mourners. Um, you still continue in most of those cases not to shave. You don't go to parties. Um, you can uncover the mirrors and return to work. You can take off the ripped clothing, although some people do choose to wear the ribbon if they're wearing a ribbon um, for the entire time. Um, and there's some... Uh, contention about whether people go to weddings or not, because Mm. often people say you don't go to weddings if you're in the period of mourning. Some people say you can go to the ceremony, not the party. Some people say you can go to the party, not the ceremony. Mm. Some people say if you have a responsibility in the wedding, um, then you're allowed to go. Mm. So it all depends. And in most cases, it's just about comfort level. Um, But the reason I think this period is so interesting is because, um, first of all, for Somebody who has lost a sibling, a spouse, or a child, this is their entire period of mourning. It will end at that 30-day mark by Jewish ritual. Um, But the mourning doesn't stop there. And as we know, it doesn't stop at the Shiva mark. It doesn't stop after seven days. It doesn't stop after 30 days. It doesn't stop after years. Mm -hmm. Um, So while the, the role of the comforter, the person who is comforting those mourners, doesn't have an oblig- a specific obligation after Shiva, I think that this is a really important time to actually keep checking in on that person. Um, I had a professor who called this the bereavement dump, <laughs> that you have all this support and it keeps going, it keeps going, and then it just cuts off. Yeah. And people don't want to call you because they don't want to remind you of the person mm-hmm. who you're thinking of. They don't want to check in because they don't want to make you feel sad if you weren't thinking about it. Mm-hmm. You know, They don't know what to say. They don't know how to be there. They don't know if they can offer to help or if they shouldn't. There are all these big questions. And I think that it's so important, even more so maybe, at the point after that first week to show up for people who are mourning and to really make note of when it's been 30 days, to make note of birthdays, um, that obviously going beyond, but birthdays, anniversaries, the anniversary of the death, mm-hmm. um, Mother's Day or Father's Day. Those days are so important for people and um, to not feel like our responsibility as the community cuts off after seven days, I think is really important. After that 30-day period, um, the mourning process continues for a parent for um, a year. So that's called Shana, which means year. Um, And so if somebody is mourning the loss of a parent, they are technically a mourner for that entire year, but they actually only recite the Kaddish, that prayer. for 11 months. And the idea is, as you recite the Kaddish, you're helping to elevate the soul to the world to come. Um, that's what we call it, Olam Haba, the world to come. But so the idea is the the child recites the mourner's Kaddish for, for 11 months because their parent was so righteous that they don't need the full 12 months in order to achieve that. Oh, okay. 
Yeah. Wow. Um, no matter who the parent was, it's just the exactly. way. Okay. That's, that's the theory. Um, yeah. So, so those are, that's sort of like the entire period of mourning. Um, but then again, Judaism, I think really recognizes what grief looks like for people. Um, and so there are built in memorials into the calendar. So we do four times a year, we recite something called Yiskor, which is an entire service. It's a pretty short service, but it's um, added on to Yom Kippur and to each of our three major pilgrimage holidays. So it's Pesach, Passover, Shavuot, and Sukkot. And um, we add it on there. And so that way, anybody in the community who has experienced a direct loss, and again, sometimes in more liberal communities, if you're a more distant loss, a parent, a friend, aunt and uncle, whatever, um, you can be part of that. It's more personal choice, but you come together and you recite that. And so often people who don't come to services any other time of year will come for that four Mm -hmm. times a year. Um, it's just this really beautiful opportunity. And it's interesting because as somebody who's pretty comfortable talking about death and pretty comfortable thinking about it, I'm not allowed to be in the room during Yiskor. And by that, I mean, by my parents' rules, I'm not allowed to be in the room during Yiskor. Um, that was something we were taught growing up, that if your parents are still alive, you're not allowed to go. Huh. And in our community, there's like a very big exodus from the room right before they start the service so that people who haven't experienced it, <laughs> mm-hmm. you know, leave. And wow. it's been something that's really interesting. Um, and the last thing is your site, which is a yearly marker um, for the, the Hebrew anniversary of that person's death. And oftentimes people will light a candle called a Yortzite candle mm-hmm. and they will um, join their community and be able to recite the Kaddish, that traditional mourner's prayer. I'm so fascinated by all of this. I I just <laughs> need to put it out there, seriously, because I have no, no idea about any of this. <laughs> Maybe just oh the ribbon thing, which I told you about. I think when we first spoke, I mentioned, I think that's what kind of sparked my interest in all of this because I was like, a ribbon? Wait. <laughs> There's so much I need to know. <laughs> so thank you so much for sharing all of your knowledge. Absolutely. I I truly, I, I think my whole life I've kind of, as we said, I felt comfortable around death. But I think in so many ways it's because of the Jewish ritual that surrounds it. Mm. That it, it really just kind of gives you a framework. Whether you're the mourner or you're the comforter, it gives you that space to, to feel and experience and remember um, and I love that that's all built into the tradition. That makes so much sense. I wonder if there's some kind of survey or study or something to see how comfortable people are with death, if that correlates to, you know, observing these rituals. That would be interesting to yeah, see. Yeah, I wonder. Like I don't even know people how to just, look it up. <laughs> I feel like most people just don't want to talk about death. They're like not even going to go there. Absolutely. <laughs> but this, I mean, this is something that comes up very often if you're brought up in this kind of uh, tradition with this tradition. So that's hmm, something to think about. So before we wrap everything up, um, the two questions I ask everybody before I let them go. Number one, if you were to die tomorrow, how would you like to be remembered? I would love to be remembered as somebody who really enjoyed life and wasn't afraid of death as someone who had fun and smiled a lot and laughed a lot and loved spending time with family and friends and who spent most of her time trying to help others 
the second one. If you could synthesize all the wisdom and knowledge gained throughout your life into a short little message to share with the people listening to this podcast and with the world, what would that message be? I was going to say, do you think it's going to be a short message? Let's I don't care. Give me a long I one. <laughs> I was like, you've talked to me for the last hour. Do you think anything I say is short? That's funny. Come on. <laughs> um, yeah. So no short messages. Come on. Um, but okay. So it's going to sound really cliche, but my message would be don't wait. And I'm not talking about saying everything you want to say to the people you love and doing all the things you want to do. Of course, that that's all really important. Right. I actually mean, don't wait to determine what's important to you at the end of life. And don't wait to have that conversation with Mm. the people that you love. Because I think so often today, people die from really drawn out medicalized illnesses, um, or medicalized death, and don't get to die suddenly, they don't get to die peacefully. And if we were able to determine our wishes and communicate those to the people that we love, then we leave a positive and healthy grief behind as opposed to a burden of not knowing whether people made the right decisions, whether they made the decisions we would have made. Um, and so just kind of try in your lifetime to alleviate that burden and have the conversations about the end of life now, rather than waiting for this magical Mm -hmm. day you think will appear in the future. (laughs) Mm -hmm. Thank you. Thank you for sharing that. Um, and where can people find you if they want to get in touch with you? Um, so I am mostly on email. I would say, um, you can email end of life questions at gmail.com. And I'm also on LinkedIn and on Facebook by name, Ariel Fried Tanzer. Um, cool. Yeah. Beautiful. Yeah. (laughs) Cool. Cool. Yeah. I'll, um, put the links up in the episode description notes i guess that's what it's called i was like did you want me to spell that no girl no 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 people can do if they want to get in touch they better put in the work okay (laughs) i'm gonna make it easy but that's how it is all right girl thank you thank you thank you so much for everything thank you it's been so fun Hope you guys enjoyed today's podcast. If you did, please make sure to subscribe. And if you'd like, leave a review on iTunes or wherever you consume your podcasts. It really helps spread the message. Also, if you'd like to connect with me, follow me on Instagram at conversations on death. And I will talk to you guys soon. Take care. <laughs>